Hello, I'm Kevin Fernando, a GP partner at North Berwick Health Centre near Edinburgh and Education Director of GP Notebook Education. Welcome to our new GP Notebook podcast, a bite-sized regular chat for all of us working in primary care. Podcasts will cover clinical tips and hacks, as well as hot topics to help make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. So for my last podcast of 2019, I will be covering my top 10 hacks and tips across a range of clinical areas from our GP Notebook Clinics courses held throughout 2019. Our agenda and dates for our GP Notebook Clinics 2020 events are now available and further details and booking at www.gpnotebookeducation.com. So here we go. Let's start with women's health. So prescribing topical or vaginal estrogen for urogenital atrophy in postmenopausal women can sometimes cause concern for both us as HCPs, but also for our patients. What are the long-term effects? Well, NICE NG23 tells us we can continue topical estrogen for as long as required, and it can be safely added to systemic HRT. And in fact, a year's supply of topical estrogen is equivalent to having just one tablet of HRT. A phenomenally helpful fact to reassure us as HCPs, but also our patients. And this fact came from the Primary Care Women's Health Forum Easy HRT Prescribing Guide. Well worth registering for free at their website www.pcwhf.co.uk to access their Easy HRT Prescribing Guide as well as a range of other helpful women's health resources. Next, mental health. Metazapine. Metazapine is a commonly prescribed antidepressant and it performed favorably in a large systematic review and network meta-analysis published in The Lancet during April 2018. Metazapine tends to have fewer gastrointestinal side effects and sexual dysfunction compared with other SSRIs, but as we know, it is associated with both weight gain and sedation. But did you know the 15 milligram dose is more sedative than the 45 milligram dose? So 15 milligrams is good for insomnia and anxiety, but tends to be sub-therapeutic for depression. So well worth being aware of this curious property of mirtazapine next time you prescribe it. Smoking cessation now. So some people feel very on edge or irritable when they stop taking Champix or they may even feel depressed and unable to sleep well. So in these cases, taking a Champix starter pack in reverse may help gradually ease individuals off the medication and reduce these uh, unwanted symptoms. Atrial fibrillation now. What is valvular atrial fibrillation and why is it irrelevant? Well, the newer DOACs, direct oral anticoagulants, so we tend to refer them to, uh, to a DOACs now instead of NOACs because they're not so novel anymore, are they? Well, the newer DOACs are only licensed for use in non-valvular atrial fibrillation. So when we talk about valvular atrial fibrillation, we only mean moderate or severe mitral stenosis or the presence of mechanical heart valves. 
So everything else is non-valvular atrial fibrillation. So an individual with mitral regurgitation and atrial fibrillation can be offered either warfarin or a DOAC. And do have a look at my GP notebook shortcut on DOAC prescribing for stroke prevention in those with non-valvular AF to aid your prescribing, particularly in the context of renal impairment. Next, gout. So we all know diuretic therapy can exacerbate gout and often it is sensible to switch to an alternative class of antihypertensive. However, did you know that amlodipine and losartan are better options as they have uricosuric properties? Furthermore, the British Society of Rheumatology is now recommending uh, discussing and offering urate-lowering therapy such as allopurinol to all individuals with gout even after the first attack due to ongoing subclinical crystal deposition and the risk of long-term joint damage and disability. So I'm now routinely offering allopurinol around four to six weeks, even after a first episode of gout. So this has been a real practice-changing point for me uh, and my colleagues at North Berwick Health Centre. Migraine. We had publication of Sign 155, Pharmacological Management of Migraine during 2018. And it offers us a new therapeutic option for the preventative treatment of migraine. And that option is actually candesartan, the angiotensin receptor blocker. Curiously, it is an effect of candesartan itself, not other ARBs and not the ACE inhibitors either. So if we are going to consider this, um, as always, we need to start low, go slow, 4 to 16 milligrams daily. And of course, we need to ensure that the baseline systolic blood pressure is adequate. So usually at least over 100 millimeters of mercury. Hyponatremia now. So do have a look again at my GP notebook shortcut on the investigation of hyponatremia in primary care. But notably, as a rule of thumb, plasma sodium decreases by around 1.6 millimoles per litre for every 5.5 millimoles per litre increase in glucose levels due to water shifts. So therefore, always exclude hyperglycemia or diabetes as an underlying cause of hyponatremia. So a very useful tip there because, of course, hyponatremia is the commonest uh, blood abnormality we will encounter in primary care. Next, starting and monitoring therapy with ACE inhibitors or ARBs. So this is a big challenge for us in primary care. We use a lot of ACE inhibitor and ARB therapy in primary care for hypertension, for heart failure, for example. So what guidance do we have? Well, we should be checking serum creatinine and potassium before starting therapy and do not routinely start ACE inhibitor or ARB therapy if the potassium level is above 5 millimoles per litre. So after starting an ACE inhibitor or ARB, we should check bloods again one to two weeks after initiation or any dose increase. 
So what sort of drop in creatinine or EGFR can we be comfortable with? Well, we can actually be comfortable with a creatinine rise of 30% or an EGFR fall of 25% with the introduction of an ACE inhibitor or ARB. So a reasonably comfortable threshold there. If the creatinine rise or EGFR or fall is greater than this, then repeat the blood test, stop the drug, and consider other causes such as volume depletion or any co-prescribed drugs such as non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. If there's no clear explanation for the creatinine rise or the EGFR fall, then do consider investigations for renal artery stenosis. And as always, for anyone on an ACE inhibitor or ARB, when initiating this drug or, re or, or certainly when reviewing um, routinely, we need to discuss and reinforce sick day guidance with individuals. And the really useful mnemonic here is stop the sad man drugs during any acute dehydrating illness, such as diarrhea or vomiting. So temporarily stop the S for SGLT2 inhibitor, A for ACE inhibitor, D for diuretic, M for metformin, A for ARB, and N for NSAID. And then importantly, we need to remind patients to restart their drugs once they're eating and drinking normally, usually around 24 to 40 hours later. Because if my patients are anything like yours, they see this as carte blanche, never to take their drugs ever again. So temporarily stop the sad man drugs, but restart them once individuals are eating and drinking normally. Next, diabetes remission. <clears throat> Very hot topic for us, isn't it, in primary care? Not a week goes by without a, a, a patient of mine asking me if they can reverse their type 2 diabetes and put it into remission. So if individuals are successful in reversing their type 2 diabetes and putting, putting it into remission, it's very important we do not code diabetes resolved. Instead, we should code diabetes in remission so they remain under annual recall. These uh, individuals have successfully reversed their diabetes, may actually still experience the microvascular and macrovascular complications of diabetes, and therefore need continued routine monitoring. And of course, a good pat on the back to say well done for maintaining your diabetes in remission. Now, there's no universal consensus on how to define diabetes remission. However, a joint position statement from the Primary Care Diabetes Society, of which I'm a committee member, and also the ABCD, the Association of British Clinical Diabetologists, issued a position statement during March 2019 and suggested the following definition for diabetes remission. Individuals who should have achieved weight loss and also a fasting plasma glucose of less than 7 millimoles per litre or an HbA1c of less than 48 millimoles per mole on two occasions separated by at least six months. And attainment of these glycemic parameters um, should be following complete cessation of all the glucose-lowering therapies. So this, we felt in the PCDS, was a very robust uh, definition of diabetes remission. So please do consider using this definition in your day-to-day -day clinical practice. Next, 
osteoporosis and bisphosphonates. Bisphosphonates have been regularly prescribed over the years, uh, but we do know bisphosphonates such as alandronic acid can often cause esophagitis and dyspepsia type symptoms. And they are actually contraindicated in those with esophageal abnormalities that delay gastric emptying. For example, esophageal stricture. So we do need to reinforce the importance of taking bisphosphonates correctly. And it is a palaver, isn't it? They should be taken alone on an empty stomach, first thing in the morning with a large glass of water. And after swallowing, the individual should remain upright and not have any food, drink or medications for at least 30 minutes. Now, importantly, if your uh, patients do get esophagitis or dyspepsia-type symptoms uh, with bisphosphonates, PPIs or, or ranitidine are unlikely to be helpful as actually symptoms are due to a direct local chemical irritant effect rather than acid overproduction. So in these situations, uh, the recommendation is to swap from alandronic acid to uh, residronate, for example, or even consider an alternative class of osteoporosis medication. So this is a great idea for a quality improvement activity for us all to consider in our, uh, our individual pra practices. Look at your patients on bisphosphonates and also on, say, a PPI or ranitidine. Do they really need that gastric protection? Good stuff. And for my last hack... Uh, we do have a look at my GP Notebook shortcuts available at gpnotebookeducation.com. There are nine available now covering prescribing in those with diabetes and kidney disease, DOAC dosing for stroke prevention in those with non-valvular atrial fibrillation, what next after metformin, investigation and interpretation of hypocalcemia and hypercalcemia, diagnosis and classification of diabetes, lifestyle modifications for hypertension, interpretation of iron studies, and finally investigation and interpretation of hyponatremia and hypernatremia. So thank you all for listening. I hope you found this podcast helpful. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcasts, which are available on all major platforms. Get in touch via social media if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future podcasts. You should also visit us at gpnotebookeducation.com to notch up some CPD points, register for our GP Notebook Clinic 2020 events, and download free resources and shortcuts to make our lives a wee bit easier, but ultimately to help improve the lives of our patients in primary care. I will be back mid-January 2020 with another diabetes-related podcast. So meanwhile, have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year.